This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scott. Hi folks, David Jameson here, editor of Contra.Scott, and I'm bringing you the first in a new short series discussing the ideas in the book Scotland After Britain, The Two Souls of Scottish Independence, written by Ben Ray, James Foley and Neil Davidson, and newly out from Verso. And I'm joined by Ben and by James. Thanks for coming, guys. Looking forward to the chat. Thanks for having me, David. Thanks for having us. Now, you're obviously two of three authors of this book. Before we get on to the first chapter and why you decided to start the book where you did, could you just tell us, James, about Neil Davidson and about the intellectual influence that he cast over this project. I mean, Neil, I think, is the most important left-wing Marxist intellectual that Scotland has produced in some amount of time. He wrote some path-breaking work on Scottish history, won the Isaac Deutscher Memorial Prize for some of his historical writings, so he's very much respected in that field. But he was also a sociologist of power, and particularly class power, in contemporary Scotland. And one of the things I think that's important about Neil is, firstly, that he was one of the first people I know to properly register what was going on with the shift in power towards the SNP, with the shift in class relations where they were absorbing a great deal more working class support on the basis of new Labour's turn towards neoliberalism. And secondly, he was also one of the first people to recognise that around the time of 2016, that the SNP had become the new Scottish establishment, particularly after Brexit, and that we were entering a period of fundamental quandary about what independence would actually mean, where the left would have to fundamentally reassess its idea and reassess its role in the leadership of the independence movement. I think Neil is an extremely important and underrated Marxist intellectual. Obviously, he was pivotal to this project at the beginning. Tragically, during the writing process or the early stages of it in 2020, as coronavirus was surging through the political body, Neil unfortunately died. He suffered from cancer and died in those months. He was very determined that we should continue the project. And what we've tried to honour, I think, is the type of critical spirit that Neil established within Scotland's culture of letters. He was not just, of course, a critic of the British war machine and a critic of new labourism and a critic of the Tories and all these other things, but he was also fundamentally a critic of the pomposity of some of Scotland's own national mythologies about itself. Its idea of itself as a left-wing country, as a caring and compassionate country, as an anti-racist, cosmopolitan country and all these other things. Neil's critiques of some of these national myths was absolutely devastating and certainly inspired me a lot to take on the type of critical approach that I do to some of these questions. Because I think you can get into the trap of thinking that it's good that we have 
this progressive national mythology in Scotland and this idea of ourselves as being left-wing and so on and so forth. But I think Neil rightly recognised that this can very often become complicit in the reproduction of the worst features of our society. And I think a lot of people are starting to realise that, particularly about the SNP, the way that they realised that about New Labour before. They used the rhetoric of anti-Toryism, of anti-Thatcherism and so on and so forth. But fundamentally, they benefit from a system that is not much changed from the type of Thatcherite consensus that we've seen in the UK. And I think it is the place of the left, critically and intellectually, to challenge that. Neil's leadership has been absolutely incredible in that field, and hopefully we've done something to honour something of that spirit. So obviously, part of the title of the book, To Souls of Scottish Independence, this is a book about Scotland, and it's a book about a movement which is necessarily fundamentally based in Scotland, but the first chapter in this book deals with Britain, the development of Britain up to today. Why, Ben, did you choose to start the book here? Well, first of all, our support for independence is contingent on an analysis of what's actually wrong with Britain today and how breaking up Britain could be an opening for kind of social transformation. So, you know, we're wanting to start the book by giving our analysis of what actually is wrong with Britain. Now, everyone across the political spectrum now agrees there's something wrong with Britain, whether you're in the Tories and you think it was the EU that was the problem, if you're people's vote, new European reader, and you think the problem is that Britain's left the EU, Everyone's got their own critique of what's wrong with Britain these days. And we want to start the book by putting forward our analysis of why Britain has reached this crisis moment where Brexit happens, where uh, it's divided by these uh, the, the national questions, not just in Scotland, also in Ireland. What are the roots of these divisions? What explains them? Why politics hasn't taken another route? Why, you know, in previous years, rather than the national questions, it's been the Labour Party and also class struggle strikes that have been the way in which grievances have been expressed. Now we're seeing national questions as being probably the most enduring fault lines within British politics today. So what explains that and why would independence potentially be a useful kind of answer to that? So we wanted to set our stall by giving our analysis of what actually is wrong with the British state as it exists today. Well, I think just to mention on that, David, I think it can sometimes be very tempting, and I guess Connor sometimes gets accused of this, to just get into the mode of talking about how shit the post-2014 settlement in Scotland has become, right? I mean, if you look at what's become of the SNP, there's a litany of policy failures, drug deaths, attainment gap, child poverty, et cetera, et cetera, missed targets, all the stuff around climate change that has been missed opportunities as well. They kind of seem to symbolise that elements of the post-2014 consensus have already decayed into a type of corruption. And you can kind of become infatuated and obsessed with some of that corruption to the extent of missing the bigger picture. And I think we didn't want to fall into that trap, which is to say, fundamentally, when it comes down to it, there are real reasons why people do revolt against the British state. There are real reasons why people are suspicious of Tory rule. There are real reasons why 
Scotland is discontented with the fact that we don't get the governments that we vote for. And the people's suspicions of the British state aren't just fundamentally the state of delusion that is sometimes implied by unionists and so on. I think that's why more than anything else we started on the question of Britain. Right, That's why Britain is chapter one. We wanted to reflect upon those genuine foundations for people's discontent and grievances with Britishness before moving on to chart some of the very many problems that have emerged in Scottish politics in recent years. And in some ways, those problems, let's remember, are symptomatic of inherent and deep-lying problems within British political culture in and of itself. Sometimes we miss the opportunity to say that. Sometimes we act as if devolution is great and therefore Scottish independence will just be like a bit more devolution and so on and so forth. I think there are increasing and growing problems with devolution that have been reflected in numerous morbid symptoms in Scottish politics. And part of the case I think we should make is that independence offers some way out of that or at least some step towards restoring some accountability in Scottish politics. Ben, can I ask you, I mean, you hear a lot about how Britain is a peculiar state. Sometimes I think this is somewhat blown up in parts of, for example, the Scottish independence movement, where you'd think that, I mean, you hear phrases like rainy fascism island. You'd think that all of the things that are bad about Britain, the inequality, the wars, the post-democratic politics are completely unique to Britain. And outside of Britain, there's a world of happy European liberal polities. How peculiar is Britain and how do you explain its peculiarities? As you say, it's it's not that peculiar in the sense that people in Britain who are critics on the left and are critics of mainstream British nationalist politics tend to play up that idea. And it's understandable that you do that because in every other European state, it's the same thing. You go to Italy, people will talk about how Italy is uniquely corrupt you go to France, people will talk about how France is uniquely disorderly and the history of strikes and whatever. Go to Spain, people will talk about how Spain's uniquely divided. So it's normal for people who live within each state to exaggerate its own state's deficiencies. Someone currently living outside of Britain and get a sort of insight into the fact that Britain isn't actually so different. A lot of the problems in Britain today also exist in the country I'm in right now, Spain. But... To get to the point, what is different about Britain or what is, probably the better way to put it is what is distinctive about Britain because a lot of the things that are distinctive about Britain also exist in other states. But in in the book, we identify three things that are distinctive about the British state. The first is an unconquered state. It was never occupied during the First or Second World Wars. It's had the benefit of being an island separate from mainland. Europe, where for hundreds of years in mainland Europe, states have been pushing each other back and forth. Britain's never suffered that. So there's again a prestige of lineage within the British state, which again, it's not unique, but it's certainly a distinctive feature of British history. I guess the second thing is that it's the post-colonial state, and there's other post-colonial states in Europe that Britain had the biggest empire. It has the Commonwealth, which still exists, and a network of states connected to the colonial era. as the city of London, which is a legacy of the colonial era and is connected to a, a network of tax havens around the world. So that forms a part of the British character. And then finally, it's a multinational state. It has nations within it, which again, actually probably most European countries have nations within the state, but certainly in Britain, they're quite strongly defined. They've always 
in certain the case of Scotland, it's always had certain distinctive characteristics, such as the legal system, education. So these are parts of what make up what's distinctive, though not not in any way original about Britain. James, some people may have heard of the Nan Anderson thesis, which was an argument developed in decades ago at the time of the New Left to understand the distinctive motions of the British state, particularly relating to its national questions. And I think for a long time, this was the kind of standard understanding of the peculiarities of the British state, both its outward appearance, its fossilised forms of constitution, its monarchy, its crumbling houses of parliament, its particular national myths, but also the strange constitutional reality of the state that Ben's just described quite well-defined nations in our transnational state, which for most of the history of the British state have not sought really to break away from the transnational state. In the book, you kind of reflect somewhat critically on this attitude. Could you just explain the arguments around the Neon Anderson thesis and where you depart from it? Well, I mean, it was a thesis developed in the 60s and 70s, and let's be quite clear about the fact that very often the predictive power of things that the left and the socialist left has said in the past doesn't always turn out that well when you when it comes down to it. Certain aspects of the thesis, I think, remain certainly true and insightful in their approach. Britain, I think, is informed by the fact that it moved towards capitalism earlier than others. It has it, it had a complete bourgeois revolution in a sense, but you can refer to certain, of course, aristocratic holdovers in the form of the state and so on and so forth. And as Ben also said as well, it was an unconquered state, unlike so many in the rest of Europe, and also with an absence of that sort of living revolutionary tradition that might be there elsewhere as well. I think we are there might well be a point of departure, although I don't think there would be much denial on this from Anderson and Nairn themselves, is that it wasn't the case, as some held in the 60s and 70s, particularly amongst the new left, that the British state was too weak and aristocratic and backward-looking in order to undergo a full-throated capitalist modernization. Indeed, what actually happened in the 1980s, defying a lot of the predictions of elements of the New Left at the time, was that Britain, in a sense, was right at the front of what capitalist modernization, so-called, of that era meant. It was highly neoliberal, highly aggressive and confronting and indeed arguably destroying aspects of union power and right at the forefront of moving towards financialization and so on and so forth. So in some ways then, the forces that are leading toward Scottish nationalism, the growth of the various nationalist dynamics and so on within the United Kingdom are rather different from what might have been predicted in the 1960s and 1970s. It's not so much arguably the backwardness of the British state as such, but in a sense, how forward it was in adapting to the neoliberal turn of capitalism that emerged in the 1980s. And having gone that much further than so many other people, it's suffered, I think, the crisis in some ways in terms of the state form that much more acutely. It's worth remembering that in the 60s and 70s, Britain was actually one of the more equal societies in Europe. And of course, by the 1990s, it was embedded 
within Thatcherism and subsequently Blairism, that Britain would be at the bleeding edge of the growth of inequality and of hypercapitalism, financialization, and so on and so forth. And partly it's that overdevelopment of some of these aspects, this overly muscular capitalist state, the type that emerged with Thatcherism, was reflected in the degree to which the state form suffered a severe crisis after 2008 with the collapse of the neoliberal growth model that was founded on the debt economy and financialization. I think it's interesting, and you'll know if you if you live in Scotland and you've been in and around the independence movement, that kind of people struggle to decide whether they revile the British state because it's antiquated and because it refuses to be mod- modern, or they hate it because it's hypermodern, because it's deindustrialized the country, because it's subjected us to kind of the liquid capitalism of financialization. I remember Alex Salmon used to refer to the city of London as a as a dark star sucking in economic and social and political energies from the rest of the United Kingdom as a sort of parasitic force. How do we understand the contradictory relationship between both a real appearance of backwardness, you know, a very centralized political system, aspects like first past the post, you know, it's not just things that are symbolic, like the monarchy, though actually the monarchy has a certain legal force in the British constitution, an unwritten constitution. It also has things like first past the post that really discipline and narrow the political system. So there are very real, there's a very real image and reality of a certain kind of political centralization and backwardness, but it's married to the forms of capitalism which are the most transnationalized, the most deracinated from national life, centered in London, which is the sort of one of the great international capitals, and money and people are flowing in and out of it. I mean, I think that's a cause for confusion. Ben, how would you explain that contradictory relationship, that contradictory motion, and how should independent supporters, for example, actually understand it. I think it's not as confusing as you think about what neoliberalism actually is. Now, there's obviously lots of different interpretations of what neoliberalism is, but what we argue in our book is that neoliberalism, first and foremost, is a, was a, about a transformation in social class and the relationship between social class and politics. And by that, I mean that it's not just attacks on the unions, the, the growth and right to buy, people owning their own homes, the individualization, consumerization of society undermine a sense of politics of being about representing social classes, whereas labor was seen as representing the unions, the working class, the Tories were seen as representing business, capitalism. That was undermined by the smashing of the unions and by Thatcher, which is probably Thatcher's most important victory of a year was to break up union power and to break up an idea of politics being about representing class interests and the rise of what we've taken from Peter Mayer, Irish political scientist, the rise of what he called the void, where there's a separation between all parties and the public and there's a kind of consumer politics whereby... You try to attract political votes based on individual kind of preference rather than, as I said, representation of social classes. So if you think about it in that sense, you think about neoliberalism as a political project and a sort of project of transformation of social class and an attack on democracy, 
because let's remember what's the origins of democracy is it's the class struggle created democracy and you look at British history chartism things like that was key to the emergence of d- democracy in Britain and it's not clear that in a neoliberal year that democracy is going to be sustained um, everywhere where neoliberalism is dominant authoritarian politics tends to be uh, on the rise. So these two things are linked together. In that sense, you can see why Britain is both modern and backward. And it's modern in the sense that it was at the cutting edge of the neoliberal revolution in an economic sense. We look at things like financialization in Britain. Britain is really one of the most financialized economies in the whole world. I mean, you look at some of the figures Banking assets to GDP in 1979 were 100% of GDP. By 2008, they were 550%. The same figures for the United States were from 80% to 100%. So Britain really transformed its economic model towards debt-based predatory financial capitalism. And in combination with that, it transformed its politics away from a politics based around social class to a politics based around individual consumer preference. And the two things are closely linked, I would argue. James, you want to come in on that? I think the sense that people have about the British state is therefore, in a sense, not incorrect. It's just simply a reflection of the way that capitalism has emerged in recent decades and certainly leading up to 2008. People often used to use this phrase regressive modernization to refer to that particular phase of development. And the great irony is that we talked earlier about the Anderson Nairn thesis. Things that in their day people thought of as elements of the extreme backwardness of Britain ended up becoming hyper-modern in a weird way. Like, you can go back and read uh, The Breakup of Britain. One of the things that's listed as precisely backward about Britain is the financialized nature of its capitalism, is the overdeveloped role of the city of London as opposed to industry and all these types of things. And you can also see things like the monarchy listed as elements of this peculiar and silly British backwardness and so on and so forth. Now, these all become part of the hyper-capitalism of the 80s and the 90s and so on. And you get this kind of like postmodern retro nostalgia, which ends up being weirdly cutting edge. And things that had been seen as backwardness within capitalism end up becoming the new model of growth. We had a completely debt-based economy that predominated throughout much of the 1990s and 2000s leading up to the crash. So the sense that people have that Britain is simultaneously hyper-developed in these horrific ways and at the same time backwards, I don't think it's completely incorrect. In a sense, that's just the type of capitalism and the nature of the capitalism that prevailed over the last period. And part of what you have to do, I think, analytically, is separate out the particular features of Britishness and the particular nature of the crisis of Britishness that we've experienced in the last decade or so, which is very real, from the more general symptomatic features that are prevalent across the whole of Europe. There is very, it's very difficult to name one society in Europe that has not experienced some manner of extreme crisis, whether in the state form or in party politics over the last period. It's quite difficult to think of any that has been entirely stable in that sense. And one of the ironies, of course, that we know within the chapter is that many countries in Europe see Britain, or did at least before Brexit, tended to see Britain as a bastion of stability. It's a fascinating in the chapter where you discuss the re-imbuing of these creaking British institutions as sites of hyper-modernity. It struck me that's a point you could make very forcefully about British cultural exports. 
So Britain's greatest cultural exports today are James Bond, who had to be revived in the modern era because he'd become somewhat fusty and ridiculous. But, you know, there's a symbol of the, the ancient British deep state, but he's now this great Anglophone export. Harry Potter, which is, of course, a kind of valorization of the British private school system, which has become a fascination around the world. Even at a time when in Britain it was sort of something that people are horrified by, the British boarding school system and the brutalization of children who went through it, Harry Potter is going, goes to a boarding school that looks like a castle, right? And then, of course, Harry of Harry and Meghan fame actually set up an American franchise, franchised out the British royal family. So that's even something you can view through a kind of cultural lens. I mean, people, you mock in the book, as people do, this idea of a special relationship. But it is the case that in the new world, in countries like the United States and Australia and so on, there is a real fascination over British culture, which I have to admit leaves me absolutely baffled. What does the history of British capitalism explain about the history of laborism and its various preoccupations and hang-ups and orientations? Certainly the traditional critique of laborism, which I think still applies very much today, is that it does make a fetish of parliamentary procedure, that it downplays the importance of other forms of struggle, that it sees control of the trade union bureaucracy as being a mechanism of getting things through parliament and of that type of control. And I don't know, I mean, it's partly a reflection of the parliamentary system and the way in which it divides people into blocks and blocks off other democratic channels and so on. I think it's also partly to do with the imperial and post-imperial character of the British state. Labour has always been pretty much uncritical of the military side of the British state, perhaps since the 1920s when it got a bit of a shock with the Red Scares. Ever since then, it's been pretty much marshaled to the foreign policy purposes of the British state. Again, it's quite difficult to see entirely what the problem of Labourism is because it keeps shifting through various stages of history. But I think those are some of the kind of most important elements of why it is a distinctively British disease and I guess why it tends to so often depoliticize question and to downplay questions that have to do with politics and ideological questions more broadly. I feel like in the chapter you make quite a strong case for the kind of the systematic quality of Labour's politics. The fact that its reliance on the state and British capitalism throws up natural barriers to radicalism, which are very difficult for the Labour Party to overcome. So one is, as you say, the reliance of the British state on its relationship to the United States and the complete devotion of Labourism to that state means it is quite militant in its defence of American military power. Another is, there's quite an interesting discussion about the politics of regionalisation in the modern British state, the reliance of the provinces of the British state on the city of London, and the fact that Labourism, and it's very much on display in Scotland, feels unable to break from this idea of wealth distribution from the London centre. Ben, could you discuss that a bit? I mean, to be honest, it's quite a vicious critique of Scottish Labour in that regard, as utterly wedded to the current model of British capitalism. Why is that? It's, it's really evident that neoliberalism has created a more divided 
country economically in terms of uh, the geographical economics of Britain. Uh, you know, it's a more regionally unequal country than it ever was. In fact, it's the most regionally unequal country in Europe today. Parts of Cornwall and the border region of Scotland have a GDP similar to southern Italy. And of course, northern Italy and southern Italy were classically seen as the most unequal, divided country in Europe. And now Britain's overtaken in that sense. If you, if you basically take that as granted, there's an important part of understanding the sort of political divisions and social divisions within Britain today. You can come to one or two conclusions. One conclusion is that Britain should be politically divided so that Scotland has its own political representation, can introduce different policies, and that can do something to change the economic situation. Another position you can come to in the Labour position is that what you do is you distribute more from the centre to the periphery. So in a sense, the greater regional inequality becomes, the greater case there is for the union, because the more need there is to redistribute wealth from London to the other regions. And essentially, that position, it maintains the British economic model and just argues for more welfare redistribution sitting on top of that economic model. So it doesn't really do anything to challenge the fundamental problem of our economy that's geared around the city of London, which sucks wealth out of our regions into the city of London and essentially just says that's how the economy works, that's where the wealth is produced. I think we quote Paul Sweeney, a former MP, who said something along the lines of the wealth is created in London and is redistributed to the other regions. So it's a very crass way to look at how the British economy works. But if you're going to argue for the union on a kind of social justice basis, then there's a kind of logic in, in, in following that line of argument, which is just to say more wealth redistribution from the core to the periphery. One critique you can make of recent Labour governments is that ultimately they weren't really redistributing wealth overall. In fact, what was happening was the wealth inequality, income and wealth inequality was rising. The city of London was continuing to grow exponentially. And what was really happening was some degree of skimming over top where elements of the regions became dependent upon some of those monies becoming transferred, back office jobs going there, et cetera, et cetera. But even if you take that aside, I think there is a fundamental problem in thinking about politics purely in terms of redistribution of wealth and income, which probably is an element of the critique that we have of laborism. And it's a critique, by the way, that has been made in the past. Indeed, it was made right at the beginning of Gordon Brown's red paper on Scotland by Gordon Brown himself as part of the new left critique of old laborism. But I think there's a fundamental truth in it, in the sense that at some stage, redistribution of wealth and income was meant to serve the political and ideological goals of working class organisation and making the working class a serious political force in society, an educated force, a more powerful force, a force with real agency to be able to assert itself. And part of what I think goes wrong, I don't think this is entirely peculiar to Britain, but it is embedded in Labourist thinking, is that ultimately we think of the problem purely and simply of the growing wealth inequality divide between the rich and poor. And really, I think, if we've got a critique there, it's about saying that's symptomatic of the fact that the working class people, as a political economic subject, whether in workplaces or in politics, don't have the agency and don't have the power that they once used to have. 
Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascott. Yeah, you mentioned a few figures on the Labour left specifically, one being Sweeney, another being John McDonnell, who walked back from his commitments on extending greater democratic control over the city of London. So is it a matter here of the working class as an agency still doesn't exist in this critique? It's all a question of what kind of technocracy you want. Do you want one that concentrates more wealth in the southeast, or do you want to spread out across the state? And is that the fundamental problem here? Yeah, and it's about how you can alleviate saying horrors. And of course, nobody wants food banks, right? I mean, obviously they are a scar on the conscience and all that sort of thing. But again, I guess part of the problem with that, are we thinking about politics the wrong way around? Because yes, of course, alleviating poverty, we're all in favour of that, right? But ultimately, you need the agency of the people themselves in order for that to become a reality. If they don't have the power to be able to transform their own circumstances and they're entirely dependent upon the state and the sort of do-gooder element in society to do that for them, then I don't think those changes will prove resilient in the first place. Just to add to that, I think the kind of kernel of our critique of Labour is that it's dodged the big constitutional questions of our year on the basis that we should focus on the bread and butter issues that are facing people and misunderstood that these big constitutional questions are ways in which people feel like they can be empowered to address the bread and butter issues that, that they face in their lives, that their that living standards are stagnating, they can't afford to get a house. So Labour has sought to depoliticize the issue, the roots of these grievances by arguing that the constitutional questions are a distraction. Often people who, in Scotland, in the independence referendum, people in parts of Scotland that had voted Labour for years, had felt let down by Labour for years, felt like the vote didn't matter, saw the independence referendum as a chance to have some democratic agency. And the same is also true of the EU referendum. People in constituencies in like the north of England who felt that they had been ignored for years because they weren't one of the swing seats that Labour famously prioritised in every general election to try to win a general election. Now every vote counted equally and it was a chance for them to have some agency over the situation. I think that's fundamentally where Labour have gone wrong, is that they've misunderstood the constitutional questions as some sort of erroneous, strange distraction from the bread and butter issues when in fact, there were ways in which people were trying to have agency over those issues. It's fairly remarkable, I thought, after reading this chapter, that in a sense, Corbynism was less constitutionally and democratically radical than Blairism, in at least one sense, which is that, of course, Blair set up the devolution settlement and really Corbynism's most radical answer to the national constitution of Britain is just to sort of extend and glamorise the devolution structures somewhat. And there's an interesting point you make in the book. The final part of the chapter is about sovereignty and sort of Britain's role in the world. You make an interesting point that 
one of the things that people need to understand is that when parties like both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party talk a very great deal about the national interest, and the national interest is typically understood as things like an alliance with the United States, for at least some of those actors, it's also understood as an alliance, a relationship to the European Union, membership of NATO. So the national interest in this sense is not to be understood as sovereignty. The traditional form of the nation state, the citizen who is sovereign, at least in theory, over the state and so on. So obviously the, the concept of sovereignty and increasingly during the period you've called the void, the, the opening of this void between the political class and the public, sovereignty is something which is retreated even more from official political thought. Why is it important to reassert the importance of sovereignty in this particular political moment when these national questions are challenging again, whether they be Brexit, Scottish independence, Irish reunification? Why is sovereignty key to understanding a left-wing intervention into this moment? I think for many decades, people have tried to imagine some new type of sovereignty that wouldn't involve the nation state. So we've had concepts of post-sovereignty, pooled sovereignty, which have always tended to founder in terms of having a popular foundation. And I'm not a nationalist philosophically. I don't think nations are fundamentally so culturally different that they all have to be separated from one another, et cetera, et cetera. But I do also think that there's a reason why the nation state has continued to form the basis and the fundamental nature of democratic politics, which is that when it comes down to it, for working class people to have a stake in politics and in society, they had to struggle to establish political democracy at the level of the nation state. And no such struggle has been articulated at the European or the national or any other type of level that is remotely compatible. And thus the stake that they have within politics and within society, and also the basic institution of society that comes in whenever there is a real crisis and is able to exert true mastery and control and authority at the level of society, remains the nation state. It's fundamentally where political community has been established. You see that when something like the coronavirus comes along, right? I mean, Fundamentally, the state can and continues to form the competitive basis of how authority under capitalism is established, and it's where you have to challenge. People have been trying to get around that problem in all sorts of ways that have proved fundamentally unsuccessful. And therefore, I think for a working class politics to revive, we need the idea that fundamentally you struggle where the source of political authority has been established. And you struggle against the forces, particularly those of capitalism, but also militarism more broadly, that are seeking to intrude in the sphere of decision-making within the nation-state. Now, I think it's only really the left that can articulate that type of politics, particularly in a British type of context. And it's the left often that's most resistant to talking about sovereignty, to talking about control, et cetera, et cetera. But if you think about it, even those forces in Britain that claim to speak on behalf of British national sovereignty, as you said there, David, really don't articulate any such thing. I mean, when it comes down to it, like, yes, the... Brexiteers may be hostile to Brussels, et cetera, et cetera. But really all they want to do is establish 
a nation state that is fundamentally more in hock to forces outside of Britain, to forces of global capitalism, whether you want to call it the Russian oligarchs or whatever it happens to be. The fact is that they want a state that's more under the control of global marketplaces rather than political decision-making. Also worth mentioning that most Brexiteers and uh, their likes within the Conservative Party were fundamentally supportive of the Iraq War and of the various American adventures and so on in foreign policy, none of which had anything to do with the British national interest, and all of which are expressions of the fact that Britain in foreign policy is fundamentally subservient to the United States of America and American global hegemony as articulated through various different national institutions. So I think the idea that the state authority is somewhere where you challenge and somewhere where you try to exert control can be an exciting and interesting idea for the left. And I think it's a shame, ultimately, that so much of the left-wing thinking and philosophy over the last couple of decades has been about trying to get away from the problem of sovereignty and national control because... I think particularly when you look at the revolts that have emerged since 2008, that's where a lot of the exciting energy has ultimately emerged. And I think you can acknowledge that without being fundamentally a nationalist in your approach to thinking about how the world is and how the world should be. Okay, guys, thanks very much for your thoughts. Obviously, this podcast will return soon with another episode where we'll be discussing, amongst other things, debates about the national question and socialism, bringing them from the kind of classical period right up to the present day and looking a bit more depth at some of the issues we've discussed and some fresh stuff as well. So, uh, guys, thanks very much for joining me for this podcast.